Glad you're here. Welcome to the Troche Center, to Business Colloquium, to the first Troche Talk of November, after, of course, the amazing 10X program from last week, which I hope a number of you got the chance to enjoy. Let's pray together. Gracious God, for this time and this place, we are grateful. We pray that our time together may be good time, that it may be marked by learning and stimulation, provocation, and challenge. Amen. I am absolutely delighted to introduce this evening my friend Stefan Kinsella. Stefan is an absolutely first-tier participant in conversations about the merits of intellectual property law. Now, for a number of you, it's probably just seemed obvious that intellectual property is the wave of the future and the source of riches and uh, a transformative piece of modern society. And uh, Stefan is here to disturb your pure minds. Um, Stefan uh, served uh, from 2000 to 2012 as general counsel of Applied Optoelectronics in Sugarland, Texas. He's currently in private practice while also serving as director of the Center for the Study of Innovative Freedom. He has an awesome background to talk about issues like this. He's got bachelor's and master's degrees uh, from Louisiana State in electrical engineering, a uh, law degree from um, the Louisiana State Law School, and a, uh, an advanced degree in law from University College London, uh, a great place worldwide to study legal philosophy. He's the author of multiple books and articles, has served as a journal editor, uh, but first and foremost is an awesome troublemaker. I'm glad he's here. Stephen. Thanks. Oh, hello. I'm glad to be here, and I really thank Gary for inviting me. This is a, a beautiful university, and I'm looking forward to talking to you guys. Um, I speak on a regular basis to various crowds, usually libertarians. Um, so unless a lot of you are like Austrian, economics-influenced, anarcho-capitalist libertarians with a specialized knowledge of IP, um, some, of, some of what I'm about to say may sound a little bit strange. So just – my goal here is just to explain what I'm thinking, why I think this is important, and some things you should think about in the future when you hear intellectual property law being discussed or debated. Um, just to give you some food for thought, basically. So think of this lecture as food for thought. And if anything that I say here makes you think and you're interested in pursuing it further, anyone here is free to contact me or check on my website um, for more resources and uh, going into depth about a lot of the things I'll talk about here today. And the website would be C4SIF, C, the number 4, SIF.org. And I have resources there on um, intellectual property and uh, why I think it's important and bad. Now, um, I am a patent attorney. I practice now. I practice for like 25 years at large law firms and corporations and now in private practice for myself. I've done hundreds and hundreds of patent applications for high-tech companies like Intel and GE. Gave counseling advice, and so this is my practice in law. But I've also been a libertarian, which means a person who believes in minimal government or no government, depending upon your, your side. I'm the no government guy. But uh, you don't have to be an anarchist. You don't have to be an Austrian economist. You don't have to be even a libertarian or even a free market type to appreciate the arguments I'm going to try to summarize here um, about intellectual property. 
it is a boring sounding topic, and I think this is one reason why it's gotten out of hand is because most people ignore it. They don't know much about it. They let the specialists handle it. You'll hear intellectual property being bandied about a lot. For example, even in the trade wars with Trump and China, you'll hear people say that I, uh, China is stealing our IP, our intellectual property, and they're all kind of vague about this. By the way, um, those claims seem to have almost nothing to do with patent or copyright, which are the two main forms of intellectual property. They have to do with China not having a totally free market, and they basically put conditions on people investing in China, where if you invest in China, you have to agree to partner with a local firm. And um, when you do that, then the firm you're partnering with gets access to your trade secrets, which is a type of intellectual property. So it's not really taking up an IP right in China. It's just um, a condition of doing business there. So the whole thing is uh, wrought by confusion about the different types of IP. Intellectual property is a term that's used mainly by its proponents, and I'm an opponent, as you'll see, even though I practice in the area. People get surprised that I'm a patent attorney and I'm opposed to the patent system, but I'm thinking if the patent system is illegitimate and does harm, who else would figure that out but maybe someone who knows it from the inside. Um, cancer doctors or oncologists, they oppose cancer even though they make a living treating it. Uh, legal defendants defend people from the tax system and the drug war even though some of them are opposed to it. So just because you're a practicing patent attorney doesn't mean you're in favor of the, of the patent system. And what happened was I started practicing law, and I was also a libertarian writer at the time. I was starting to write and try to figure out libertarian theory, and I've written a lot on it since. Um, and I started thinking, what's the justification for patent and copyright law? And the typical justifications given – you'll hear these things. This is the standard justification. In America now, everything is empirical or pragmatic. Do these laws improve efficiency? Do they cut costs? Do they encourage innovation? These are the kind of arguments you're going to hear. But traditionally, the arguments for intellectual property – and let me stop and define the ones I'm going to talk about now, which is the, the main two types of intellectual property are patent and copyright law. So the patent system was a, a statutory scheme started in the beginning of the country right after the Constitution was ratified in 1789. A year or two later, the first Patent Act was formed, and so was the first copyright law because the Constitution authorized Congress to do this. And the patent system basically protects inventors in their inventions. It gives you a legal monopoly over selling a certain invention for, say, 14, 17 years, something like that in the beginning. And copyright was around 14 at the time, renewable one more time. Copyright protects your, your creative rights uh, in creative works like a, a novel or something like that, something artistic. Um, so patent and copyright are similar. They were both started around the founding of the country, and the typical argument is that without the government protecting you from competition, there would be an underproduction of these, re of these intellectual goods. There would be an underproduction of inventions and innovation. There would be an underproduction of artistic works because as soon as you produce a new map or a new book or a new painting or a new software program or a new invention… Other people on the market can see what you've done, and they can copy it. They can either compete with you in your business. They can make a competing product that's very similar to yours, you know, like the Dyson vacuum cleaner. Soon after that, people have other Cyclone-type vacuum cleaners. Apple introduces a, a, a keyboardless touchscreen smartphone, and then soon there are competitors. You invite competition when you tell the market about a new idea. That's the innovation side. Or in the case of artistic works, if you publish a book, then um, 
the fear is someone can just make a copy and sell the copy for cheaper than you could have done. Or if I make a new drug for a pharmaceutical compound, someone can just wait and see what I've developed after spending lots of money developing it um, and uh, copy my drug. So the real argument that people give is that unless we step in and protect creators from competition, they won't have the incentive to produce these works, and we will have less works or a suboptimal production of works. So we need the, the government to ride in on its horse and, 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 and tweak the market to give people a temporary monopoly so they can sell these works free of competition to make an artificial monopoly profit to recoup the cost they put into making it. That's the kind of empirical or econo econometric or utilitarian Argument, and this is what you'll you'll hear. And if we have a Q and A session, someone will probably ask me, "But without IP law, why would I create a new drug? Why would I write a novel? Why would I write poetry?" You know. So you the the and that's not even an argument; it's a question. But implied in that question is an argument that the role of the government is to step in and make laws that generate more wealth for humans by identifying failures in the free market system that produces suboptimal production of certain goods, and we can fix this and tweak it. Now, I think most people, even people that support the government, don't really trust the government to be that good. Now, the second argument given for patent and copyright is more of a, a deontological or philosophical or Lockean or a rights-based approach, a merit-based approach, a dessert-based approach. The idea that we have these rights, we have property rights, we have natural rights because we're humans… And in a capitalist Western free market society, the rights that we generally have are property rights that let us profit from our hard work, from our labor, from our efforts. You know, if you, if you build a farm, if you build a factory, you make cars, you make iPhones, you're entitled to make a profit by selling those products on the market. So the idea gets ingrained in our heads that, um, that we have this sort of almost natural right to make a profit or a return if we put work into it, almost a Protestant idea, the Protestant work ethic idea that you should be rewarded. But of course the free market never guarantees anyone any profits, um, and the problem is that when you put effort or labor into an idea like a novel or a painting or something that can be easily copied, it's very easy for someone to, 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 to compete with you. In the physical world, in the brick-and-mortar world, if someone comes up with the idea of a fast-food restaurant for hamburgers like McDonald's or someone comes up with an idea of um, delivered pizza like, like Domino's right, or Pizza Hut or whoever came up with it first, they might have a temporary quasi-monopoly, not really a legal monopoly, but they do – they're able to charge nice prices and have corner of the market. But eventually that success will attract competitors. And so if you build a pizza restaurant, you're going to have competitors soon. They're going to be Papa John's and other people that are going to deliver. McDonald's is going to face Wendy's and Burger King and other competitors, and eventually they're going to have to change their game to keep up with the competition. And this is the natural part of the free market, and we're all used to that. In the case of intellectual property, there's a short circuit. Everyone thinks that, well, competition is all well and good, but when we have um, – when it's too easy for competitors to compete with you, then that's a problem. It short-circuits the workings of the free market, and this is the implicit logic behind intellectual property law. The idea is that if the bulk of the value of my product is merely in its design – for example, if I print a book, the bulk of the value in this book is the way the ink is laid out on the page, the patterning, 
of the book. But that's easy to copy. Someone can just make a copy of that. It's not easy to copy with my pizza restaurant. It takes a while to get capital, build up a chain, uh, physical stores and things like that. Uh, and the same thing if, if, I, if I sell a new mousetrap, which has a new feature that makes it more valuable, any competitor selling a mousetrap can just add that feature and keep up with me. Right? So the idea is that for, 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 for products and services that people come up with that are heavily intellectual-oriented, um, um, it's really easy for competitors to compete, and it makes it harder for us to make a profit, and therefore we know that, and we wouldn't engage in those endeavors in the first place without the artificial incentive of patenting copyright law. That's the basic argument. Now, I think these arguments are totally fallacious. Um, um, number one, the empirical argument. First of all, you would think that – okay, so the, let me quickly mention the history of patenting copyright law. Show, tell you where these things came from. In America and the West, they came from the Congre Congressional Acts of 1790-91, right after the Constitution was ratified. They started patenting copyright law, but they did that because the Constitution, as ratified in 1789, had a patenting copyright clause, which authorized Congress to enact laws protecting authors and inventors' works. So the Constitution said, Congress, if you want to pass patent and copyright laws, you can, and they, they did as soon as they did it. Um, um, but why was that clause in the Constitution? It was in there because it was seen to be part of not exactly the common law but the British system of law, and that is because, uh, of course, we, the U.S. split off from Britain, and uh, in, the, in the U.K. and in Europe… In the centuries before the founding of the United States, um, there were two practices which were the genesis of copyright and patent law. One was, um, the, uh, one was the advent – in the case of copyright, the advent of the, of the printing press um, uh, threatened to overturn the existing regime, which had been this. It's very hard to copy text. There were scribes. That's where the word inscription or, or scribble comes from. Um, scribes would hand copy books, the Bible, things like this, but they were under heavy control of the church and the state. And so the books that were produced under this antiquated system were controlled by the state and, 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 and the church, and so the content that the people could see was heavily controlled. Um, but when the printing press came about, that was threatened to be overturned. And so England first uh, gave a monopoly to the stationer's company. To print books, but when that expired, um, finally um, um, uh, the publishers lobbied the Queen to enact more of a formal statutory protection of copyright, and that became the Statute of Anne in, in 1709, which basically said that authors own the copyright, and this is what's led to the entrenchment of the publishing industry and the music industry and the Hollywood industry now. Until the, the uh, until self-publishing and Amazon and Kindle books have started to break this monopoly system that we have, where creators basically most of their rights have been assigned over to the publishing houses or their or their studios um, or their labels. Um, now, patents arose from the practice of monarchs and governments granting monopoly privileges to favored court cronies like uh, Sir Francis Bacon, uh, like. Uh, Drake, I mean the pirate Drake, the privateer or pirate Drake, Sir Francis Drake, the, the tea company, all these monopolies where the, the king would open – issue what's called a letter patent. The word patent in Latin means open, so it was an open letter 
that the bearer could present to everyone saying, the king says, I'm the only guy who can sell playing cards in this town. I'm the only guy who can sell sheepskin in this town or export it. Um, so they were basically anti-competitive monopoly privileges, and these, this got to be very abusive, and so the parliament cracked down and enacted a statute to try to limit the ability of the government to grant these monopoly, anti-competitive, anti-free market monopoly grants or privileges, and that was called the Statute of Monopolies of 1623. And that's where the patents came from. It's because um, that Statute of Monopolies cracked down on the ability to grant these monopolies, but it made an exception in the case of inventors of original inventions, and that led to our modern law. So you can see that basically American, modern American and Western patent law, which protects people's inventions, which basically means it protects their protects them from competition in selling an innovative new product came from the practice of monarchs in um, protectionism and pr protecting people from competition. So it has nothing to do with the free market and nothing to do with, with private property rights. And copyright that we have now comes from basically the attempt of the government to control the spread of, of, of speech and the press, basically censorship. And it's not surprising that the patent system that we have now, in my view, does actually impede innovation, does not promote innovation. I have never in my years seen or seen any studies that prove that anyone has ever invented anything um, because they were lured by the incentive of a patent system. Um, and by the same token, there are lots of artworks that are pr produced now, and it, having a copyright still doesn't guarantee that you're going to make a profit. Um, even having a copyright on a book of poetry doesn't mean you're likely going to make a lot of money on it, but people produce these things anyway. Um, so what's the right way to look at this? Um, the way the libertarian, at least my flavor of libertarian, and there's lots of libertarians, and we basically libertarians in my view are people that believe in justice, in fairness, in human prosperity, and in establishing and justifying the right set of legal rights and institutions that promote justice and that are fair and that promote human prosperity. Now, why do we need this? And this is what the role of property rights um, is. Just check my time here. Um, the reason we have property rights is because we live in a world where there's such a thing as conflict. Some of the things, these things seem obvious, and maybe they are. Uh, it take, took me a while to figure them out, all out and stitch them together. Um, we live in a world of scarcity, and this is the whole basis of – you don't have to have known a lot of Austrian economics, but the most important Austrian thinker is Ludwig von Mises, and the cornerstone of his philosophy is what's called praxeology. It's the only the, – the one new word I'll, I'll introduce. It means the logic of action. So he thought the, the foundation of all economics is the realization of the structure of human action and implications we can impair, uh, deduce from, those, uh, from that structure of human action. And just to put it in simple terms, think about this. We're all humans. We all act in every moment of our lives, and to act means to have a view about the future that's coming, to have some understanding of the world, and to be uneasy about what we think might happen unless we intervene. All human action is always intervention in the world. It's doing something, but doing something means taking a means, taking some resource that we think can help us intervene in reality to create the change we want. So all action is a combination of two essential ingredients. Number one, 
the availability and command over some resources, some tools, including your body, that you can use to change the course of affairs. And number two, knowledge or information or ideas or personal values that guide your action. So you have to be aware of the world. You have to be aware of what might work to change the future. You have to have some guess about what the future is coming that you want to change to result in the future that you, you want to happen. So this is what human action is. But human action means using these scarce resources, but scarcity means that these resources by their nature can only be used by one person at a time. All right? They're essentially rivalrous or, as I say, conflictable. That's sort of the word I coined. It means there can be conflict over their use. And as humans in society, we get benefits out of living with each other. We can cooperate. We can trade. We can, we can commune with other humans. But the danger is with other humans around, they might try to use the same resources you're using and would interfere with your plans, and you would have a case of violent or physical conflict. But because we all know that resources need to be used in action by all of us, and we would prefer to live peacefully and in a conflict-free way, we, we, we realize that for these types of resources where there is scarcity, right, where there's a possibility of conflict, we need to have rules that say, okay, in the case where two or more people want to use this resource, we need an answer to the question, who has the right to use it? And that means who has the property rights. So all law and all rights are about property rights, and they only arise with respect to resources that people can conflict over. And they arise because people want to find a way to use them in peace. And therefore, you have the, the common law or the private law of the West rules that have arisen, which are largely what libertarians favor, which is very, a few very simple rules. In the world, there are two types of scarce resources. There's your body, and there's everything else that was previously unowned, things in the state of nature. In the case of your body, the libertarian rule and the default rule of all civilized society in human history is self-ownership, which means who owns my body? I own my body. And that, that rule is the basis of being opposed to assault and murder and those types of crimes because basically a murder or an assault is using someone's body without their permission because they're the owner. So. Self-ownership opposes those types of, of, of invasions. Now, in the case of these external scarce resources, the rules are extremely simple as well. We identify the owner of a resource in the case of a possible conflict or an actual conflict by asking a few questions. Number one, who had it first? Right? Who homesteaded it or was the original appropriator of this resource? Or number two, who got it from a previous owner by a contract? Those are, the, those are basically all of the rules. This is how you would reason about these things. So when it comes to intellectual property, we talk about ideas. Everyone's asking, oh, well, should we have IP? Do we need IP for people to write novels? Um, do you have a reward? Do you have a right to get a reward for, for inventing a new mousetrap? This is not the way you answer questions about what the law should be or, or about what the just result should be in a given situation. The way to answer it is to stop back and ask, what are we talking about? What's the thing that's in, in dispute? What's the question about? What is the law affecting? What rights does this law uh, create that affect which type of resource? And then the question would be, is that resource, is that thing a type of ownable thing? You have to first ask the question, is it ownable? So, for example, if I said, well, I love my child. Who owns that love? 
the question is a meaningless question because it assumes that love is a meaningful thing. It's a meaningful concept. It's a descriptive word. It helps describe what we experience as humans. But just because we have a valid concept that makes sense doesn't mean that the word itself necessarily refers to a thing that is the subject of property rights. The same thing has to do, uh, the same thing would apply, I believe, to other concepts we've developed in economics and social theory, such as labor and value. Yes, we value things, or as the Austrians would say, we demonstrate that we value things by our actions. But the concept of value is a, is a legitimate concept, but it doesn't mean that you can own value. The concept of labor is a, is, a, is a legitimate concept because it just describes one type of human action. There's basically two types of human action. There's leisure and labor, something you do for its own sake, which is consumption or leisure, and something you do as an intermediate means to achieve something else down the road, down the road something you otherwise wouldn't do, which is labor. But basically, labor and leisure are both actions. And an action is simply what a human does using scarce resources to try to change the future. Right? So to say that action is real, and it is, to say that valuing is real, and it is, right? to say that labor is real, and it is, doesn't mean that these concepts denote an object that is a rivalrous, conflictable, scarce resource in the world that is a subject of property rights. In other words, just because these concepts make sense doesn't mean that you own these things. So the question of ownership of an idea never comes up. So... Um, what I would like to do is I'm going to summarize here and, and finish up and leave room for any Q&A. But um, the ultimate problem with intellectual property law is that it avoids the rules I just gave earlier, the simple rules. It goes outside of those rules, the rules that we assign ownerships and bodies by saying who is the person that controls that body, who is the person, right? If you say A owns B, he owns that person as a slave… The problem with that idea is that the owned person should be the owner of his body. This is the problem with slavery. It's that the legal rule identifying the owner as someone other than the, 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 the person that controls that body violates this basic rule. And by the same token, if I find an oil field or find some iron ore and make a plow out of it and I, I'm selling these objects on the free market, I own these horseshoes or these plows or these tools that I'm making… I own them because I was the first person to get the material, or I purchased it from someone else, and because I have not contractually given them to anyone else. If the law simply comes along and says that my neighbor owns them, then the law has taken my property and given it to someone else. That's basically theft or redistribution of, of rights, and this is what intellectual property law does, and the reason it does it is because in the case of copyright, for example… Copyright gives the holder of the copyright. That would be someone who writes a novel, let's say, and owns the copyright in that pattern of words. He can use the courts to enforce his copyright and to issue a physical force threat against another publishing house that wants to make a copy of that book. With Now remember, this third party, this, this rogue publisher, this pirater, they want to use their own resources, their own paper, their own ink, their own printing press… And stamp out copies. They're not harming anyone. They're not invading the property rights or the physical property of the author. Um, they can be given a court order not to publish this book. Now, this is this is clearly censorship, but the justification is this copyright of the author. But the reality is, the copyright basically transforms the printing press of the 
of the pirate publisher into the property of the author. So it's a, it's a taking of rights. And it, and, and it has led to um, heavy distortion of culture, the rise of sequels, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, the strikes laws on the internet, um, the websites being taken down by ICE. Um, and it's, it's a threat to internet freedom because the government keeps threatening to restrict internet freedom to stop piracy. So copyright law is a huge um, harm to society. It impedes the threat of spread of free speech and the spread of, 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 of freedom of the press, and it amounts to censorship. Um, I think the patent system is even worse because I believe the patent system in protecting innovators from competition reduces reduces innovation because a lot of companies that would otherwise put resources into innovating on top of other people's innovations can't do it because they can't sell the products they come up with for 17 years. So it slows down innovation, and innovation is the backbone of human prosperity. Private property rights plus innovation are the two things that have made us as rich as we are, the division of labor and the number of humans today. Um, um, capitalism is great. But the reason I believe that we are richer today is because over time, every generation gets to use the bulk of knowledge that we've developed, and that grows every generation. And because every human action, as I mentioned before, uses scarce resources and knowledge, right? You have to have scarce resources, which are the raw materials, and you have to have knowledge about how to use it, technical knowledge. Anything that slows down the development of technolo technological knowledge uh, impoverishes the human race compared to where it could be. We could be living in a world of uh, pollution-free, fusion power, flying cars now, or maybe even better, near immortality if the government had not slowed us down. So I believe the patent system is one of the most evil systems we have. It's up there with the harm done by the other big things the libertarians and other civil libertarians and some conservatives complain about, which would be the drug war, war, taxation, central, central banking and inflation, government, government education or public schools, some people call it, and the welfare system, which have done untold damage to human society. But I believe that intellectual property should be thought of as being up there with those, those maybe in the top one or two or three. And for those reasons, I, would, I think that human, the human race would be far better off if we immediately and completely abolished patent and copyright law. And I'd be glad to take any questions. Hello, Bueller. Any questions? So, so, and, and right. So these a lot of the so the, the big the big baddies right that libertarians generally oppose would be war because war kills lots of people, um, the drug war, central banking, all all the regular the regular things that we we complain about. Um, in my mind, there are arguments that can be made for 
for war on occasion or for taxation, uh, even for central banking. I think they're bad, but they're, but you can see some reasonable arguments. The one the one of these of the of the of the classic horrible systems that we criticized. The one of those that cannot be justified is the drug war. There is like there is no good argument for the drug war, and it's resulted in untold damage um, in society um, to minority families, and to the, it's resulted in mass incarceration. It's just it's just horrible. Um, and I think intellectual property is up there in that there it's like the drug war, and that there are literally no good arguments for the intellectual property system. It's simply the government coming in and protecting people from competition, and there's just no good argument for that. Uh, now, the damage that the drug – the reason I think the patent system may be the most evil thing the government does is because I think that the key to human prosperity is the development of technological knowledge over the ages, which we do. Every age, we, we, we develop more knowledge, but anything that slows that down means that we're slowing down the rate of, of prosperity and, and progress in the human race. And the patent system clearly impedes innovation because it, it gives you a monopoly right to your innovation as soon as you come up with it, and that reduces the incentive of, your, of people to compete with you in coming up with uh, alternative ideas. So that, that's the reason. I think the patent system is not seen as a great evil, but it, it really is. It, anything that slows down technological innovation it, it, uh, literally kills people. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, uh, the argument about um, the patent system is, is there to protect the small guy from the big guy. That's one of the arguments given. Well, that was not the original. So the original argument – well, first of all, the original source, as I mentioned, the history, the, the, uh, the, the history of, of patent law is that monarchs would just grant uh, protectionist grant, grants of privilege to court cronies. Uh, and then the, the statute of monopolies in 1623 got rid of most of that but left one remaining ability of the, of, the, of the government to grant monopolies for inventions. Now, in the United States Constitution, the clause said to, to encourage um, useful inventions, right? to, to, to encourage the, the progress of the arts. Um, the Congress can have the power to temporarily grant limited monopolies. Um, so even the original – uh, purpose of the patent clause was simply to encourage or stimulate innovation. It had nothing to do with the little guy versus the big guy. And the truth is that the way it's worked out, just like in the, in the music and in the uh, uh, say in the music industry, up until fairly recently, um, even after the statute of Anne gave the copyright to the creators, it still remained with the publishers because they had to go through these gatekeepers to publish their works. So it ended up in a system where. Employees or artists typically had to sign their rights over to a big company anyway. So the, the big companies have co-opted the patent and copyright system. And in the patent system, most patents are filed by large companies based upon the inventions of their employees. And when you become an employee of a company, you're an engineer, an inventor, a scientist, and you're hired to invent. You either sign an agreement or the default law says that the company owns these patents anyway. 
So no, the patent system, if anything, um, helps entrench. And let me give one example of this. In the smartphone, smartphone wars, if you just look up smartphone patent wars, you'll see Samsung and, and, and Apple um, have had – and some other companies have had these massive multi-hundred million dollar patent battles over the last seven or eight years about patents on different aspects of smartphones and related technology. Now, what this, what this does is the large companies like, let's say, Apple and Samsung, they have enough profit because they're first and they're large. They hire lots of patent attorneys like me. They build up big what's called war chests or patent portfolios. They have hundreds or thousands of patents in their, in their war chest. They can use this to sue each other, and they can finally settle, and they can make a cross-licensing deal, and they take those $300 million they've wasted on lawyers, and they just… Pass that on in terms of increased prices of the gizmos, and so the consumers pay for it. But what happens to a little guy, like an up, a, a brand new – if you wanted to start a smartphone company tomorrow, you would see two or three or four dominant companies with hundreds or thousands of patents each and billions of dollars of resources and law firms all around the country. And if you tried to step your foot into the field and make a smartphone that worked and had res re reasonable features like rounded corners… Um, you would be sued to the ground, and you wouldn't have your own war chest of patents to sue them back. So you would just be – this is why the patent system actually creates oligopolies or cartels. It encourages monopolies and cartels. It protects the large companies, and the little guy is up in the cold because he doesn't have any patents that he can use to counter sue these guys. So it actually works the other way around. I think when people complain about large companies and corporations, the patent system encourages it. And by the way, in the case of pharmaceuticals, everyone says, well, it's so expensive to make a drug. You need to have a patent to protect you from competition. You finally release your drug 17 years after you started researching it and spend a billion dollars getting FDA approval. You need to have a protection from the government and competitors in the form of a patent so that you can recoup your costs. But of course, the majority of those high costs are imposed on the government. By means of the FDA system. So the government regulates the drug companies with the FDA system, imposes billions of dollars of costs, and then the government says, Well, you poor babies, you need help getting back the costs you've imposed on you, so we're going to give you a monopoly in the form of a patent. So the whole system is schizophrenic. Um, maybe the government should just get rid of the FDA system and the patent system and let the free market operate. Anyone else? Yeah. Patents. 
So just the, the pure lobbying and the inertia and the fact that everyone believes that intellectual property is a type of property right, it's part of the free market system, it's part of the capitalist system. They're deluded into thinking that if you oppose IP, you're opposing capitalism or free markets, so that's the mistake that's made. So I think it's going to be extremely difficult to, um, to roll back patent copyright law, especially because the US has squeezed it on the rest of the world say it's copyright provisions by means of treaties like the Burn uh, Convention and, and TRIPS and all these other conventions and by bilateral trade agreements with China and other countries in Canada and, and, we, and Japan. We force them to adopt our standards to do a trade deal with us. So we're, we're basically, it's like a type of intellectual property imperialism. And not only that, once you have a treaty, it would actually be arguably illegal under international law for the United States to roll back its own copyright law to the local provisions it had in the 80s. So we could say, oh, sorry, we can't even reform copyright law because it would violate international law. So it's difficult to do that. On the other hand, I think that it might be unnecessary. As we all know, there is the internet now, there is encryption, there are currents. Um, piracy of music and movies is widespread, and the government will never be able to stop it, which is a good thing. So basically, the evasion of copyright law is happening on a widespread scale now, and that's a good thing. And over time, I think the technology will make copying of, of, of other people's material easier. Think about it. The internet's what we call the world's biggest copying machine. This is 2019. It will never get harder to copy than it is now. It's only going to get easier. So copyright is going to slowly um, whittle away by just technology. In the case of patents, I, I have a slight hope that something like that could happen over time with 3D printing. As 3D printing matures, it's very primitive right now. We're in the pre-dot metrics era, right, in terms of 3D printers. But when in 50 years, when everyone has a 3D printer in their basement or down the street, and they can get an encrypted file for the design of a new machine or motor or some gizmo and print it without anyone's permission, patent law will become available too. And that's another good thing. So I'm hopeful that technology will just let us do the end run around, just like uh, I think John Perry Barlow, one of the early internet pioneers, said something like, you know, the internet. Seeds and attempt to censor its damage and routes around it, which is a good thing. So I'm hopeful that the free market with technology can route around the damage of copyright and patent, but I don't see any legislative hope. Uh, the only thing I hope for is that the rate of increase in patent law and copyright law um, will slow down, and I think it has. If you remember about four or five years ago, the state tried, the government, the federal government tried to impose SOPA, Stop Online Piracy Act, which would have made copyright enforcing even harder and restricted our internet freedom is even more in the name of protecting copyright, which is another reason I'm against copyright is the right to freedom on the internet. And the internet is the greatest tool we've ever had to fight the state and to fight restrictions on liberty. So anything that threatens internet liberty, digital freedom, is a huge threat to human liberty, which is why copyright is such a problem. Um, but I still think hacks are worse, but it's a, it's a tough choice to come Thank you.